You're listening to a sermon from LifeGate Church of Seguin, Texas. This sermon was preached by Joshua Jordan, who serves as the lead pastor at LifeGate Church. Find out more about us at www.lifegateseguin.com. You will make your way to the gospel according to Luke. If you haven't turned there already, just make your way to the gospel according to Luke, chapter 1. We're going to be looking at verses 26 through 38 this morning. Today we are in week 3 of this sermon series entitled, From the Manger to the Throne. There are certain memories we have whether they are sweet memories or sad memories, whether they are recent memories or memories from a long time ago, there are certain memories we have that never fade or die. As long as we have breath, they remain with us. I would imagine that Mary, the mother of Jesus, cherish the memories she had of her son. I do not think it is a stretch to say that there was probably not a greater possession she had in life than the memories that she had of her son, Jesus. Don't we all wish that we could share in those memories? Don't we all wish that we could have pulled up a chair beside Mary and said, tell us, stories about what it was like to be the mother of the Lord. Well, here's the good news this morning. In the gospel according to Luke, those precious memories of Jesus did not pass with Mary. No, they are recorded in Holy Scripture and they continue to live on today so that we can cherish them as much as she did. So let us turn our attention to this passage this morning. Today, as we begin our celebration of Advent, we're going to travel back in time. We're going to go back in time to a tiny, unknown town, not in the region of Judea, where we were last week, but in the region of Galilee. Because it was there That God displayed his grace to a young woman named Mary in the most surprising way. The title of today's message is The Wonders of His Grace. Because that's what this message is about. It's about the wonder of his grace. If you have your Bible before you, I want to invite you to follow along as I read God's holy inspired, and authoritative word. Luke chapter 1, beginning in verse 26. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one. The Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son. You shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the son of the most high. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, How will this be since I am a virgin? And the angel answered her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. 
Therefore, the child to be born will be called holy, the son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age also conceived a son. And this is the sixth month with her who is called barren. For nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. The passage before us today can be divided into two parts under the following two headings. Here's our outline for this morning. Discovering the story of the gospel, verses 26 through 33. And encountering the God of the impossible, verses 34 through 38. That's what we're going to see in this story. Discovering the story of the gospel and then encountering the God of the impossible. Let's begin by looking at verses 26 through 33 again. Discovering the story of the gospel. Church, listen. The the appearance of Gabriel and this announcement to Mary that she would be the mother of the Messiah. This passage reveals to us the story of the gospel. If you're wondering, what do we do with this birth announcement? Well, the fact that this angel came from God and makes this announcement to Mary that she would be the mother of the Messiah, in this story, we hear about the gospel. If you recall, in the opening message two weeks ago, when we were looking at verses 1 through 4, I I, I drew attention to though Luke's gospel account focuses on the person and work of Jesus, it's actually the story of the triune God. So I want to encourage you to do something this morning. Pay careful attention to the redemptive work of the triune God that is on display in this birth announcement of Jesus. See, we can so be focused on the baby Jesus that we can lose sight of not only is the gospel story being told, but the triune God is on display. Let's go back to verses 26 and 27. It says, In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. We're informed here in verse 26 that Gabriel, who was sent from Heaven by God. Remember, he was sent by God from heaven to announce the birth of John the Baptist. He's now deployed on a second mission. Remember last week, he was sent from God to appear to Zechariah in the temple. And six months later, he is sent on a second mission. And this time, This story takes place not in the region of Judea, not in the temple, but in Galilee. And in verse 27, we're told that Gabriel was sent to a young woman. We don't know where he appeared to her at, but we're told that he appeared to this young woman who was engaged to be married according to the customs of that day. And most importantly, we're told a number of times in this passage, she was a virgin. She had not been physically involved with Joseph, nor would she until they were married. This is so important for us to remember how this baby is going to come about. And we're told Joseph, the man that she is betrothed to, engaged to, we're told he was the descendant of King David. That's an important detail later on in verses 32. And 33. Now let's listen to what this angel declares to Mary. And then let us pay careful attention to her response. Let me read verses 28 through 30 again. Listen 
to what the angel says and pay careful attention to Mary's response. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one. The Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. So after giving us the details in verses 26 through 27 to set up this story, we are told Gabriel appears to Mary and he greets her. There's nothing unusual about this greeting. It is a standard greeting. There's no hidden meaning. But what follows is surprising. He greets Mary and then he brings a declaration from God to Mary. He says, Greetings, O favored one. The Lord is with you. God is with you. That, that, that statement, O favored one, is an amazing term. The fact that he said that was him basically communicating to Mary, God has bestowed his grace on you. That word favor there is only used one other time in the New Testament. In Ephesians chapter 1 verse 6. It's a particular word. that The, the, the root of that word is where we get our word grace from. He's basically saying, Mary, God has bestowed his grace on you. And he is with you. So, so let's make sure we're understanding exactly what, what, what was taking place here. This angel appears. He greets her. He speaks to her that God's grace is on her and that God is with her. Think of Moses and the burning bush. This is that kind of moment. This is one of those moments where God appears He's appearing in the form of this angel Gabriel, but he's appearing and he's telling her this, this news, this surprising news. And such a surprising announcement from God, it obviously caught Mary off guard. And it caused her to wonder why this message of grace was being proclaimed to her. Look at verse 29 again. It says, but she, upon hearing that she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. So once the angel greets her, tells her she has experienced the, the grace of God in a unique way and that he is with her, we, we, we're told that she was greatly troubled. The word for troubled here in verse 29 is a stronger, more intense word than the word we find for troubled used to, to describe Zechariah's response in the last passage. Do you remember Zechariah was troubled when he saw this angel? This isn't the same word. It is a word with greater intensity, greater just angst to it. You, you could say that Mary was shocked and confused. She's shocked. She just doesn't even have categories for what's happening. That, that's what this, this word, troubled, is meant to communicate. She, she is just undone. And notice why she is shocked. She's not troubled. Look, she's not troubled. Look at verse 29. She's not troubled by the sight of the angel. She's actually troubled over the meaning of this event. It's what the angel says to her that troubles her. It's not that an angel appears, though that must have been frightening. It's what he says to her and what it means that she is just completely shocked and confused. And, and we can see by the text, Luke tells us she's trying to make sense of it all. And it appears she's visibly affected by this message. 
She's trying, as Luke says, to discern what all this means. She's trying to figure out what in the world was going on. So then the angel addresses her again. Seeing her state of shock and confusion, he speaks to her yet again. Verse 30. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. He repeats it again. Mary, don't be afraid. You have found favor with God. God's grace is upon you. It's like the angel is saying, Mary, I'm here because God has a work for you. He, he's, he set you apart. He has chosen you. Which leads to this question. For what? What is God setting Mary apart for? Well, we find out in verses 31 through 33. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son. And you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the son of the most high. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. So God appears through this angel Gabriel, to speak to Mary, telling her, you have received grace from the Lord. The Lord is with you, and here's why. Here's why this has all happened. The Lord has chosen you out of all women, from all time, out of millions or billions of women, the Lord has chosen you, Mary, to give birth to the long-awaited Messiah. So he prepares her for this message by telling her, Mary, grace has been given to you. And when Mary's like, I, I don't understand what, what this appearance means and why God would be showing me such favor, the angel calms her and says, Here's why you've gotten this grace. Guess what, Mary? Out of millions and millions of women, over thousands of years, God has chose you to be the mother of the Lord. And even though we're told she was a virgin, she would give birth to a baby boy whose name would be Jesus, a name which means the Lord saves. And then Gabriel describes who, who this son will be. He, we're first told he will be great. Now remember, Zechariah was told that his son would be great before the Lord. Jesus isn't Spoken of as great before the Lord. Just great because he is God himself. So John the Baptist will be great before the Lord. He will just be great. Because he is God himself. Look at the next title he's given. He will be called the son of the most high. This title identifies Jesus as the divine son of God. Who will be Mary's human son. So he will be Mary's true son in the flesh, but he will be the divine, eternal son of God. You see, Jesus, the son of God, the son of Mary, and the descendant of Joseph, we are told here in verses 32 and 33, that he would fulfill the role God promised to King David. Do you remember? God made a covenant with David. In 2 Samuel 7, and then recorded again in 1 Chronicles 17, God made a covenant with David. And, and, and basically, here's the essence of that covenant. He said to David, your kingdom will never come to an end. 
And at this point, as we remember from last week, 400 years of silence has taken place. And the king who is on the throne at this point isn't from the tribe of Judah. He isn't David's descendant. That's not who Herod is. And Rome, Rome is ruling at this point. It it appears that this promise has not been fulfilled. But now the Lord announces to Mary, God is going to fulfill His covenant. That His kingdom would never come to an end. Listen, Jesus will uniquely fulfill this role because He's the eternal Son of God, not just a man. Do you know when when God made this promise to David, do you know why this promise hasn't been fulfilled? Because it doesn't just say your kingdom will not come to an end. It says, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. Well, what man can reign forever? This king will. Do you catch the foreshadowing already occurring at the front end of this gospel? This king will live forever. You can crucify him and put him in a tomb. But he will live forever. So here's the essence of the announcement. The angel shows up, greets her, tells her she has been the recipient of God's grace and makes this announcement that she will be the mother of the Messiah. Now, before we consider what happens next, the second half of this passage, I think it would be wise for us to stop and to consider the gravity of this moment. Let's just stop and think about this moment for, a moment, for, for just a second. And let us consider the effect this announcement must have had on Mary. And let us consider one other thing. What what effect should this announcement have on us? What effect should this announcement just have on us? Is just a familiar story from this time of the year that we rehearse and that we read about. But it's lost its effect. I pray that this morning we we would be affected by what we have just read and encountered. Luke gives us a clue on how we're to interpret this passage. We don't need to be creative. We don't have to go to seminary. Here's what Luke gives us the clues in this text of how we are to interpret this announcement. He, he, He gives us this clue. Remember. He has put the story of Jesus' announcement of his birth. He has connected it with the birth announcement of John. Do you see that? So he expects us to read these stories together. Let me give you just a few hints here that that's what we're called to do. That's what we're invited to do by, by Luke. Notice how this passage began. In six months. In six months to what? Connected back to last week's story. Since the the angel Gabriel appeared to Zechariah six months later. So we're we're to connect these two stories even in their timeline. And then notice what happened in last week's story and this week's story. The only time we hear of Gabriel appearing to these two people. Two appearances of Gabriel to announce the birth of sons to women One who could not give birth and one who should not be able to give birth. And both of these conceptions are miraculous. What happened with Zechariah and Elizabeth was miraculous. What would take place in the womb of Mary was miraculous. And it doesn't end here. Because not only is Luke going to tell us how Jesus was born, he's not done talking about John. He's going to tell us about John's birth. So we're to read this whole section together. We're to connect the birth of Jesus and the birth of John. 
And when we compare these two stories, we see many similarities, but we also see two major differences. When you compare Jesus and John, you see that Jesus is far greater than John. As great as he is, one of the ways we know how great Jesus is, we have somebody to compare him to. And John is incredible. And yet Jesus is far greater. But here's another thing we're, we're not meant to miss. But I think we can. When we compare these two stories together, here's what we discover. The Virgin Mary in the town of Nazareth is far different than the priest Zechariah in the temple in Jerusalem. We shouldn't have been surprised, or maybe not too surprised, that God would appear in Jerusalem in the temple to a priest. Do you realize that among all the Jewish writings and including the Old Testament, Nazareth is never mentioned. It is so inconsequential, so small, so nothing. It's not like Bethlehem, which was small, but was prophesied about. Nazareth. And to this woman in Galilee, that's meant to surprise us. And it's meant to say something to us. You see, God is displaying His amazing grace to the world by choosing the most unlikely candidate from the most unlikely place to be a part of His most incredible act of redemption. Don't miss that. Mary? In Nazareth? All of these years, thousands and thousands of years, God's people have been waiting, and he chose her? Where is she from again? <laughs> See, there is something wonderful being communicated to us when we stop and reflect on this announcement to Mary. J.C. Ryle put it this way. He said, we need not hesitate to conclude that there was a wise providence in all of this arrangement. The almighty counsel, which orders all things in heaven and earth, could have just as easily appointed Jerusalem to be the place of Mary's residence as Nazareth. I could have easily chosen the daughter of some rich scribe to be our Lord's mother instead of a poor woman. But it seemed good that it should not be so. The first advent of the Messiah was to be an advent of humiliation. It speaks to us. If we will slow down and take it in. See, there, there is a great lesson to be learned about the way God chose to shower His grace on this virgin from Nazareth. Here, here's what we're to take away. God was making a loud statement that He gives grace to anyone who will receive it, including the inconsequential, the outcast, the poor, the oppressed, the pagan sinner, and the religious hypocrite. And guess what? In, in Luke's gospel, we're going to meet them all. We're going to meet the inconsequential. Ever felt that way? Nothing important about my life. Live in a small town. Just do the same old job. Nothing great about me. We're going to see God uses people like Mary and Joseph to be a part of his work. We're going to encounter the outcasts in the gospel of Luke. Those you would have never thought they would be given grace or receive it. We're going to experience the poor and the oppressed being given grace. We're going to see pagan sinners who love to sit down with the Savior. And they are going to be the recipients of grace. And guess what? Even religious hypocrites are going to be offered grace by Jesus. They may not always receive it, but they're going to be given grace. You see, one of the major themes of Luke's gospel 
is the way in which Jesus elevates the lowly instead of the elite. It's one of the things that separates Luke's gospel from Matthew and Mark and John. He mentions the poor more. He mentions Gentiles more. He highlights the work and the service of women far more. He mentions more stories of women than all the other gospel writers combined. He mentions so many things to make this point, that Jesus elevates the lowly instead of the elite. And he welcomes the outsider and the marginalized into his kingdom. So let's take that in before we just move on in the story. The the way that God appeared to Mary, it's meant to speak to us and affect us. But there's one major problem, one major problem that must be addressed before this story can come to a close. You would think at this point the story would come to a close. But Mary had a question, and we probably have the same question. How can this be? How can this be? How can Mary give birth to the Messiah if she's a virgin? And that brings us to the second half of this passage. Encountering the God of the impossible. Verses 34 through 38. Look again at verse 34. And Mary said to the angel, How will this be since I am a virgin? Upon hearing this announcement from the angel, Mary, like Zechariah, asked, the angel Gabriel, a question. Her question, however, was not motivated by unbelief, like Zachariah's we saw last week was. That's not what her question was motivated by. She's not saying, God, that's not possible because you can't do it. She really, remember, she's perplexed by this whole thing. Mary's making this inquiry of the Lord through this angel, because she doesn't understand how how this could be possible. This is scandalous. There's no way I can bear a son. That's, That's not, that's not, no, it can't happen. Do you hear what Mary is saying? She's not questioning that God can do it. And notice Gabriel's answer. Verse 35. And the angel answered her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you. And the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. There's the answer. How can the Virgin Mary give birth to the Son of God? How is that possible? The answer, God would perform a greater miracle than the one He had done in Elizabeth when He opened her womb and gave her a son. He's going to do a far greater miracle. You see, the birth of Jesus took place because the Holy Spirit calls Mary to conceive. So God gives her the answer. How can this be? The Holy Spirit is going to cause Mary to conceive. Friends, Gabriel's answer is astounding. Because it highlights that the grace of God is both personal and powerful. Why do I say that? Why why does Gabriel's answer show us that, that God's grace is both personal and powerful? Look again at verse 35. God the Most High caused the second person of the Trinity to enter into the world in the form of an embryo, and this took place by the power of the Holy Spirit. Do you hear the Trinity in that passage? God the Most High will cause the second person of the Trinity to enter into the world in the form of an embryo, and how's that going to happen? The Holy Spirit's going to make it happen. God is involved in all of this. Church, let us never Forget this truth. Grace is far more than a doctrine or a concept. 
Grace is the loving disposition of God and the redemptive work of the triune God for undeserving sinners. That's what grace is. Grace isn't just some idea. Grace isn't just some theological concept. Grace is personal. God made this happen. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit were all involved in this moment. You see, when man was in need of redemption, God himself entered the fray. When God was in need of rescue, God came into the darkness. When we needed to be saved from our rebellion, God entered into the rebellion. And his grace, listen, is not only personal, it's powerful. See, God can accomplish the impossible among his people. And God can accomplish the impossible for His people. And God can accomplish the impossible through His people. I want you to think about this question for just a moment. What difference would it make if the Lord was gracious and willing to save, but was unable to save? What difference would it make if the Lord had a gracious, loving disposition to sinners, but he was unable to save because he didn't possess enough power to cause his plan to happen? You know what difference that would make? All the difference in the world. See, if God was just personal, but he isn't powerful, this is not good grace. It's a wonderful sentiment. I'm glad that the God of heaven has a loving disposition towards sinners, but it doesn't do us any good. You see, God isn't just personal. He's powerful. See, what if, what if God made big promises, but he didn't have the ability to keep them? Brothers and sisters, listen. The story of the gospel is about the God of the impossible. That's what we take away from this passage. The story of the gospel is about the God of the impossible. Why do I say that? Well, because of verses 36 and 37. Gabriel could have just ended where he did, but listen to what he says. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son. And this is the sixth month with her who was called barren for nothing will be impossible with God. Notice what just took place in these two verses. To demonstrate that he had the ability to accomplish this audacious, audacious claim. And, and this is an audacious claim. That a virgin could conceive and give birth to a son. And that this son would be fully human and fully God. That's an audacious claim for God to make. But here's what he does. In order to demonstrate his ability to fulfill this claim. The Lord gave Mary a sign. He gives her a sign. He says. You know Elizabeth. There's been a baby growing in her womb for six months. The woman that everyone said was barren, no longer. See, God can do the impossible. See, what happened to Elizabeth and her barrenness was a clear example of how God can accomplish the impossible in order to fulfill his promises to his people. Once again, listen to J.C. Ryle. He says, nothing is too hard for the Lord. There is no sin too black and bad to be pardoned. The blood of Christ cleanses us from all sin. There is no heart too hard and wicked to be changed. The heart of stone can be made a heart of flesh. There is no work too hard for a believer to do. We may do all things through Christ strengthening us. There is no trial too hard to be borne. The grace of God is sufficient for us. There is no promise too great to be fulfilled. Christ's words never pass away. And what he has promised, he's able to perform. There is no difficulty too great for a believer to overcome. When God is for us, who shall be against us? And he ends the paragraph with this. The angel's recipe 
is an invaluable remedy. Faith never rests so calmly and peacefully as when it lays its head on the pillow of God's omnipotence. (laughs) God's great power. That's what omnipotence means. God is all power. Faith never rests so calmly and peacefully as when it lays its head on the pillow of God's omnipotence. Listen, church, let us not forget why this gospel account was written. If we go back to verse 4, as we began a few weeks ago looking at this preface, Luke tells us why he wrote it. He wrote this gospel account so that we would have certainty. We would have assurance of faith. And do you know, there are few things that fuel our faith and cause our confidence in God to grow than when we are fully convinced that He can do the impossible. You want to grow in certainty? You want to grow in assurance? Then fuel your faith. And few things fuel our faith than when we are confident that God can do the impossible. And Mary was a woman of great faith who took God at his word. She believed that what he was, had spoken, he was able to fulfill his promise to her. Look at how this passage ends. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be according to your word. Friends, what is the only appropriate response to the gracious gift of redemption that God has provided for us in Jesus? What's the only appropriate response? If, if God has done all of this, that God has take, taken on flesh and has entered into our world, what is the only appropriate response to this gracious gift of redemption. Well, friends, Mary models for us what it looks like to put our faith in the grace of God. Listen to what she says. Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. That word servant is actually the word slave. I belong wholly to you, Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. Do you know what that means? If we were to summarize what Mary just said, she says, Lord, use my life however you will. Not because God needed her permission, but she submits in light of this gracious gift of redemption and says, Lord, use my life however you will. Can I ask you a question this morning? Is that your response to Jesus? Is that your response to grace? Not grace just allows me to live however, and I know God forgives me. See, the gracious gift of redemption requires something of us. That we say, Lord, thank you for this gift. I receive it. Use my life as you will. Now let's consider the impact that this birth announcement would have on Mary versus the impact it had on Elizabeth. Remember, we're meant to compare. And if we go back to verse 25 from last week, let's pay attention to what occurred when Gabriel makes this announcement to Elizabeth. He basically, this is what happens to the birth of her son. Elizabeth's reproach among people was taken away. Don't miss this. Mary, however, would experience reproach among people due to the birth of her son. Grace was going to cost something of Mary. 
When God showed up to Zechariah and said, your wife is going to bear a son. The reproach among people was taken away. On that day, God shows up to this virgin who's betrothed and says, you're going to bear a son. It brought reproach upon her. In other words, being the recipient of such a gift of grace, at times, I'm sure it felt like a burden, a hardship, and a trial for Mary. Sometimes receiving God's gracious gift of redemption may create a context for people to judge us, to ostracize us, and to misunderstand us. And I think that's really important that you hear that, especially young people. Following the Lord and receiving this wonderful, gracious gift of redemption, it's going to create at times a context for people to judge us and to ostracize us and to misunderstand us. And that should not surprise us because opposition and misunderstanding will surround the ministry of Jesus. The further we go in this book, the more people won't all be saying, oh, Jesus, look, he does miracles. They like him for a time. They like him because he does certain things. But the longer we go through Luke's gospel, the more the opposition grows. That's the one we're called to follow. Listen, being a follower of Christ is glorious and good and worth our whole life commitment. But at times, being a follower of Christ can be hard and it requires a lot of sacrifice. And I think that's important to say because I, I, I believe a lot of people, I see, I see this happening a lot among younger people and 20 and 30 year olds who are once following Jesus who've walked away. And a lot of them are walking away because they didn't count the cost of following Christ. That you're not going to be cool on the university campus if you follow Jesus. You may not get invited to the Christmas party at work if you follow Jesus. We need to count that cost. One last time, I want to I close by quoting from J.C. Ryle again. As he reflects on Mary's response to the angel, this is what he said. There is far more of admirable grace in this answer than at first sight appears. A moment's reflection will show us that it was no light manner to become the mother of our Lord. In this unheard of and mysterious way, it brought with it no doubt. At a distant period, great honor. But it brought with it for the present no small danger to Mary's reputation and no small trial to Mary's faith. All this danger and trial, the Holy Virgin was willing and ready to risk. She asked no further questions. She raises no further objections. She accepts the honor laid upon her with all its attendant perils and inconveniences. Behold, she says, I am the handmaiden of the Lord. And then Ralph says this, let us seek in our daily practical Christianity to exercise the same blessed spirit of faith which we see in the Virgin Mary. Let us be willing to go anywhere and do anything and be anything, whatever be the present and immediate inconvenience, so long as God's will is clear and the path of duty is plain. That's what we're to take away from this passage. May we emulate Mary's response. This may cost me. My family may not understand I'm not going to be able to explain this away. But grace has changed me. And I, I'm going to go wherever the Lord takes me. No matter how hard it is, no matter what it costs, in the end, it's worth it. Even if in the meantime, it's difficult. Over the next few weeks, as we reflect on the story of Christmas, we will celebrate what God has done for us in sending Jesus to save us. But listen, Advent must not just be a time of celebration. It also must be a time of submission to the Lord. If all the birth of Jesus means to you, 
is that grace has come, let's celebrate, but it doesn't have any bearing on how you live your life. You've misunderstood his coming. See, Advent isn't just a time of celebration. It's a time of submission. And here's why. Listen, anything less than total surrender to Jesus is a rejection of the grace of God. Aren't you glad that God sent Gabriel to Mary that day? Aren't you glad that God in His grace came in the form of a baby to save the world? Well, the only right response is that you submit your life to Him. Anything less is a rejection of the grace of God. But let us not just celebrate during this season. And there is so much to celebrate. Let us also with Mary say, Lord, I am yours. Do with me whatever you please. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, we do ask that you would help us by the power of the Holy Spirit to have that posture. Right now, as we face various trials and the temptations of the world, Lord, we can all be tempted to thank you for your grace, but not to submit to you as the God of grace. Lord, I pray for those right now who are struggling who do not in any way reject your grace. They, they love, they believe, they wholeheartedly are committed to the fact that you sent your son to die for them. There's no way they could be right with you apart from Jesus. But they are struggling among their friends, among their co-workers, among their family, among those around them to say, I belong to Jesus. Would you help Anyone who's struggling with that. To have the, the faith of Mary this morning. May we all leave with that faith this morning. Especially those that are here that have never given their heart to you and their life to you. And have never surrendered their all to you. And ask you to be their king and their Lord. And to change the trajectory of their life. Oh Lord. We thank you that as your word went out today. We know that it's done a good work and will not return void. Now we pray that as we leave here. What you have said to us. What you have done in us. Lord we wouldn't just move on and go about our business. But we would continue to reflect on and apply and live in the good of. Help us to do that now. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Church, let us stand together and sing as we leave today, this first Sunday of Advent, singing the song, Sing We the Song of Emmanuel.